0: You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Savage Arms and the new 110 Ultralight. At about 6 pounds, the 110 Ultralight is designed to combat elevation and the elements while maintaining the performance of a factory blueprinted Savage 110 action. The carbon fiber wrapped stainless steel barrel makes it durable and lightweight the rifle comes equipped with the Savage AccuFit technology, so that means it's adjustable and it comes in a variety of calibers the 308, the 270, the 28 Nozzler, the 280 Ackley Improved, the 30 6, and much more. If you want to find out more information about the 110 Ultralight, visit savagearms.com. On today's episode, we're going over the 2020 gear review. So I've been doing one of these just about once a year where at the end of the year I kind of go through the entire list and talk about some things that I like some things that I didn't like some things that might be on my wish list for next year and there's some things on this list certainly that I have talked about already in some of the episodes or have done uh, video reviews on so for those certain things I'm not going to go into as much detail uh, but I'll just talk about where I might have talked about some of those things uh, at other times. I'll also mention that my deer season isn't 100% over yet I have a North Dakota hunt planned next week, and the very cold weather. But I don't think that, based on what I've learned so far, that any of my opinions or thoughts are going to change a whole heck of a lot uh, based on that hunt. Spartan Forge is currently showing a combination of transition area and full range movement, so I think there's a pretty good opportunity that if I can get out there and find some sign, find some you know especially hot food sources, then hopefully the opportunity will be pretty good to go ahead and fill a tag right before the season closes. So we'll dive right in. And if you guys are just listening to the audio version, if you jump on like Instagram or Facebook, I'll have a picture posted of this gear list. And you'll be able to follow along uh, with some of the things that I'm talking about in the order that I'm talking about. Maybe, you know, skip around a little bit if there's certain things that you want to try and uh, hear in more detail. And there's certain items on that list that are bolded. Those are the ones that I'm going to be expanding a little bit more and talking in a little bit more detail about. Whereas some of the other items I might just kind of gloss over or point to where I've done other reviews on them. As most of you know, I've been using Onyx for several years for e-scouting and waypoint management. In the field or at home, I can browse aerials and topos, map my routes, draw lines and waypoints, color code points of interest, geotag photos of rubs, or even what a specific tree I intend on hunting looks like, so I can find it in the dark, say for example. Furthermore, I can download maps for offline use, and of course, browse public and private land boundaries. Use the code DIY for a discount on an Onyx Hunt membership. All right, so let's dive right in here. The order that I'm going to go over these items would be archery related things, then saddle hunting related accessories, then clothing, followed by boots, packs, accessories, and then trail cameras last. So for archery, you know, I've been really happy so far with the system I've been running, which has been that Gearhead B24 uh, with... You know, one of two arrow setups. I've talked about the arrow recipes in the past, but one was based off of a Rip TKO from Victory, a 250 spine. That's kind of my, you know, a little bit heavier or, or higher front weight setup, a little bit lighter. So it's like 510 grains, you know, 17 or so percent front of center, uh, around 270 feet per second out of my rig. And then also the other setup was that micro diameter, thicker walled, more durable type of a shaft, which was the Vector Hammer. In a three hundred spine, and that one had a little bit less point weight than the other one did, uh, but they both ended up spining pretty well and shooting accurately out of my system. And that one I ran veins on just because I didn't get as good of a fit with the fobs that I had on the Rip TKOs. Uh, so each one of those setups, both the little bit heavier, you know, close to five fifty. And also the, a uh, little bit lighter around 500. I didn't have any performance issues really with either of them. Didn't have any accuracy issues with either of them. And I'm probably not going to do as much testing as I did this year, uh, looking into next year, just because I've been overall pretty happy with how those things have been performing, uh, ironwell heads. I've been really happy with those. You know, I've used a lot of, I would say I've used good heads in general for the past several years. You know, whether it was like the, uh, the VPAs or the bishops, um, just, you know, solid heads that are less likely to break. I haven't really used much for mechanicals, although I've used, uh, like the Sever 1.5s, uh, here and there, but I'll probably continue to stick with those iron wheel heads. Uh, the wides I was pretty happy with. They're a little bit noisier than the solids. They also have a little bit bigger cut. And if any of you guys saw the blood trail on the video that I posted with the Wisconsin buck, Likely I would have had a good blood show with a lot of heads just based on where I hit, but I was, there's probably the best blood trail I've ever had, probably on a white tail. Uh, and of course I think the, the artery set on that frontal is definitely a contributing factor there, but certainly the head was uh, very good as well with over two inches of total cut on that fixed blade head between the bleeders and the main blade easy V sight, I've been really happy with, you know, continued for that white tail, you know, sub 40, where you might get less of an opportunity to range your animal. I feel like I've, I'm very used to the, you know, looking at that system, looking at that sight picture, you know, I think for whitetail, if you have just kind of like a single pin, that's probably your least cluttered sight picture on a non-movable and you just aim a little bit higher, a little bit low is probably, you know, for guys who are very adverse to a cluttered sight picture, maybe the best. Uh, I also know a lot of guys that have the Garmin sight uh, where it's legal. I actually... One of my friends lent me a Garmin sight to play around with a little bit, and even though I feel like that one has, you know, the better accuracy in terms of getting you an exact range and putting just one very uncluttered pin there, there's also a lot of just kind of concerns I have regarding durability and the potential for me to mess up when using that sight versus the Easy V. It's just, you know, bomb-proof, simple. Uh, so I'll continue to use that Easy V next year for deer hunting for sure. The only time I might use something different, I think, would be if I'm doing like a you know, say like a 3D shoot where I'm not necessarily practicing for hunting specifically, just like a fun 3D shoot and I want to dial an exact range. Or if I go on like a you know spot and stock type of a hunter or something like that, where I would want to potentially use a range finder and move a pin to an exact yardage. And then I have on my wish list here, I don't, I don't really have any major wishes or needs uh, to upgrade to. Uh, it's more of one of those things where if I feel like I really want to, I might try out the B30 from Gearhead, which is just a little bit longer. They've also been teasing at a kind of a new model. So I'm curious to see what that ends up being. Uh, Also the Expedition Escape is kind of a similar type of bow, you know, fast, um, pretty good reviews, 30 inch axle to axle, and they're coming out with something new. It looks like some type of new riser material technology potentially. So it'll be interesting to see what that is in early January. Uh, the Matthews V3 and like the 27 or 31, all of those bows kind of are in that same ballpark where they're going to be, uh, you know, fairly fast in terms of their IBO speed, which the only thing that matters to me is just that there's more energy stored in the, uh, the limbs in those models. So it might be a little bit harder drawing, but they'll throw those heavier arrows at a really comfortable speed for me, you know, that 260, 270, maybe even 280 feet per second. Uh, and I feel like that's a really good range that I've been happy with for, for whitetail just kind of general speed and knowing that trajectory. So that's really all I have for the archery side of things. The only thing I'll just kind of mention too, is that between the two releases I used quite a bit this year, the stand perfects and the extinction two, one of them being a thumb trigger release, one of them being an index style release. I definitely used the thumb release much more for target shooting, uh, for summer shooting, for 3d, for field, um, shoots during the week and I did shoot one of my deer with that release as well this year, but overall from a comfort level perspective, I'm still leaning towards the extinction too, which is that index style release when I'm actually out hunting in the woods. The only downside to that release is that if I attach it to my wrist, when I leave the truck and then basically have it on the entire hunt, then that, uh, Index trigger and the little bit of exposed metal that's still there, even after I wrap the thing with you know stealth strips, it still gives you a little bit of potential for noise and just bumping into stuff when you're setting uh, your platform and your sticks and everything. So the easy solution there is obviously just to you know keep it in like a thigh pocket and then put it on when you're in the tree, which isn't that much different than you know just carrying it a thumb release. So the losing it while you're you know walking into the woods isn't as big of a deal, I don't think as what I used to make it out to be. But I do also feel like with that thumb release, if I'm cold, then my fingers, you know, I'm putting all of the, all of the strength requirements on those three fingers to draw it back. It has never been an issue, but there's a little bit more comfort. there, just knowing that that index style release is attached to your wrist and that your fingers are out of the equation. And you're just drawing back with those bigger muscles that, and that release is just attached to, you know, extension of your arm. And also when I have the various collars and just clothing in general, that index, that index trigger, you know, when it comes out from your face, just mentally, it seems like it's much less likely to accidentally hit something. Whereas that thumb trigger gets, you know, dangerously close to say like a collar of a jacket, uh, closer to my chin. And I'm always kind of worried that I might accidentally bump it as I'm getting prepared to shoot. So now we can move on to the saddle hunting side of things, of course, as I'm sure everybody knows, I am involved with tethered. And so I use a lot of their stuff in addition to some things that I either modify or just kind of DIY myself. So for some of the main staples, like the saddle, i use the phantom with the sys haulers for the, uh, platform. I use the predator and I also use the XL just a couple of times to try it out this year. And then really where I kind of, I guess, deviate would be for my alignments and my uh, tether. I have been using just kind of DIY Oplex, which is an eight millimeter rope instead of the man ropes. And for my tether, I oftentimes will use just a Beale jammy and a normal rock climbing carabiner. That Beale jammy is a really strong sewn loop that works pretty well with that eight millimeter Oplex. And the rope man too is something I'll also sometimes switch to either one. I think are fine. You just gotta be a little bit more careful with the, uh, the teeth on the rope man too, just to make sure that you fully open that can before sliding it, just so it cl- keeps that uh, sheath and that rope nice and clean. Lyman's rope is a similar story. Although I will say that the rope man definitely works much, much better than the, uh, Oplex in terms of being able to easily slide it after you've locked it down. So I wouldn't use that Beal jammy even with like a tending device on my Lyman's, just cause it, it doesn't loosen up nearly as easy as that uh rope man does. So- so with the tether, I feel like I can go either way. Uh, but definitely for the lineman's, the, the rope man style ascender is, is still kind of my favorite. I've also experimented with some stuff that's, you know, more, I guess, out of spec, but, uh, I don't want to just talk about that as kind of like, a um, on the podcast, just in case people might get the wrong idea. Uh, but I've been just playing around with various things. Like I usually do at ground level. The one thing I will say though, is that now tethered is coming out with their own ropes that are eight millimeter. I've seen them in hand but I don't have any you know personally myself but they're they look like they're every bit as good if not better than the oplex rope so i'll probably be switching over to all of the tethered ropes instead of the oplex between the predator regular and the predator xl it definitely is nice i will say to have that xl set up and wanting to just kind of stand on it and be able to turn for that weak side shot it's really nice uh that said, for just kind of normal use, I still feel like I prefer, in general, the original. I feel like it gives me enough room to do what I need to do, and it fits in the pack a little bit nicer. I was able to get the XL to fit inside my packs, but it's a little bit tighter of a squeeze. It's not that much heavier when you think about it. I mean, you're talking about between all the gear you're carrying, it's like roughly a pound difference between one and the other. Uh, but the So I think a lot of it will just come down to personal preference of which one is the best, and... For me right now, I I tend to lean towards that little bit smaller, you know, OG predator, as a lot of people will call it for hanging my accessories. I always used to use just a really lightweight strap, like a one inch strap with just like a little cam buckle on it. And then just, um, some either 3d printed hooks or hooks that came with the HME strap and that worked pretty well. What I ended up trying was a minimalist version of that made out of AM steel with a camet from night eyes. And that also worked pretty well with some 3d um, hooks that I was able to make and slide onto it. But then I also decided to try the his strap and it's a little bit smaller version of a his strap, uh, not like the original size webbing, but just a little bit smaller, which now tethered is uh, coming out with as well, a little bit smaller version of that his strap. And I guess really as much as anything, it's just kind of a lighter webbing so that it packs down a little bit smaller inside that sis hauler. But then what I do with my accessories is I've been just taking some of the Kydex material. I ordered some from Amazon, just these big Kydex sheets. And then I cut out a little strip of it and make a hook and just shape it and connect it to whatever piece of gear I want to be able to attach to it. So I had put one on like the back side of the little retractable um, lanyard that I have in my grunt call. So I can just, you know, pop that in a, a groove I made one for my bow right on the attachment where the uh, quiver would normally attach. And so I can hang my bow there and I put one on the quiver hood too. So I can have my bow on my right side and I can have my quiver on my left side being left-handed and even the binoculars, I tend to not like, especially when I have more clothes on having the binoculars on my chest. I prefer to have them, you know, kind of off my body. So I made a little Kydex hook to be able to put in the head strap for my binoculars. And that seemed to work pretty well. Also for my 360 camera, I end up actually having a little ground spike that I tend to always have connected to that camera. And I found that with the spacing of the loops on the his trap, I can just drop that ground spike and just kind of force it in to one of those loops. And then the bottom of the ground spike will actually usually find a groove between the bark of the tree. And that'll hold my 360 camera in place too. So that's nice because I can just set it up like that in the tree or if I end up hunting on the ground I can just shove that ground spike into the ground and film that way. It seems like right now the one stick method is really getting popular if just the number of posts per day or per week on Facebook pages is any indication. I have everything that I need to do the one stick method. I have specialized one stick sticks. I have all of the ropes and accessories and everything. I have all of the equipment that I would need to do SRT to get up into a tree. But still what I find myself going back to is just the tried and true multiple sticks with a movable aider. And I can get with three of the new tethered one sticks, which I realize aren't out to the masses yet, uh, but should be, you know, hopefully pretty soon into 2021. I just use those three sticks and I made a two step movable aider that I can use with those sticks. And I mean, I can get, you know, up to 24 feet to the top of that third stick if the tree allows for it, and that's as high as I wanna climb. Or I can use any combination of that movable aider and, you know, one to three sticks if I wanna hunt lower. And that combination for me, I just feel like I can be a lot more versatile and a lot more stealthy and just overall feel more in control than I can, oftentimes with the one stick method, particularly with trees that lean. Uh, straight trees usually the one stick method isn't too challenging uh, especially if there's not a lot of limbs but add some big knots or splits and a little bit of lean to a tree and i just feel a little bit more comfortable in general with multiple sticks and i feel like i can really take my time and be exceptionally stealthy with that method originally i wasn't quite sure how i would like the shorter step spacing on the one sticks because i oftentimes have preferred you know up to even like 22 inch step spacing on the sticks that i built in the past but one thing i found with that little bit shorter step spacing is not only can i carry the sticks in vertically on the back of my pack but i can also use the you know clip-on straps in the bottom of my backpack lay those sticks horizontally across the bottom of the pack snap them into place and then the profile of the sticks is maybe just a hair longer than my hips Uh, so unless I'm going through really, really thick stuff and kind of parting the ways with my arms type of thick, then, you know, sometimes that brush will just kind of snap back and hit the sticks. And I've silenced the, uh, all of the aluminum with style strips to help reduce that as like an issue. But if you're not walking through stuff, that's that thick, it actually is a pretty good way to carry the sticks. And you can even, you know, then carry your bow or whatever else you want to carry on the exterior of the pack. And do it that way, as opposed to having those sticks vertically. And then they take up kind of the, the bulk of the pack space. And I'll talk about how the pack is set up in a little bit, you know, later in the podcast. Really the only thing that I have on the quote unquote wish list, you know, the new ropes, like I mentioned, the new eight millimeter ropes from Tethered, a lighter gear hoist would always be welcome. I don't have any issues carrying that Doles gear hoist right now. Uh, I basically just pop a hole in one of the SIS haulers with a soldering iron just to kind of cut and burn at the same time. And I ran the bottom of that Doyle's gear hoist cord out the bottom. So that Doyle's gear hoist just lives hundred percent of the time inside one of those sys haulers. And it works, it works well enough that I'm willing to carry that extra weight. But if there was a lighter version, that would be nice. And then the last thing that I have here is hopefully kind of a multi-use thing, which is just a, a ground pad, right, a closed cell foam. Uh, type of ground pad, something like a -a Thermarest Z-Lite seat, where I can use it if I go out west on like a spot and stock glassing type of a hunt, and I can just use that to sit on the ground. Uh, But also I feel like when I do ground hunt and I want to sit on the ground, whether it's, you know, say turkey hunting or whether it's deer hunting, I feel like the closer I can get down to the ground tends to hide my outline a little bit better than even if I were to say put the predator platform a foot off the ground and just have that little bit of separation where my thighs are now lifted and have that separation away. So I feel like that, you know, two ounce ground pad, that closed cell foam or whatever it's going to be, that's going to help protect me thermally from the conductive heat loss of the ground. It's going to be a little bit more comfortable than just sitting on the ground itself. And also it's going to protect from any kind of moisture or water that's on the ground. So I feel like that's, just a real cheap, you know, quick, light, easy thing that I'll probably just go ahead and buy and add to my kit. So now we can talk about clothing. And some of these pieces of clothing I've done more extensive reviews on, specifically the Fanatic jacket, uh, the new version 2019. I did a full video on YouTube about that jacket. Also for fleet, I've done basically a full gear review on all of the fleet items that I have currently, but they have some new stuff that's come down the pipeline that I'll touch on too. And of course, the Chamberlain down jacket I talked a little bit more about in my last episode, uh, which is why I probably won't touch on it quite as much here. Uh, but I have sold that jacket just because it's not—it's not what I was hoping it to be. It, it'll be good, you know, for the intended purpose for the you know out west glassing guys who want to just sit on a, a ridge in really cold weather and glass. But trying to make it work for whitetail is like trying to put a square peg in a round hole. So for base layers. I used a combination of the Sitka core lightweight hoodie, which is a synthetic layer. Also wool base layers from both fleet and first light, and also an alpaca layer from fleet. And then the Numa layers, which are heated. Uh, I have the vest I've had the vest for a while. And I also picked up the pants just recently here. I used to think that wool was a hundred percent the way to go. Now my opinions changed on that a little bit. I don't, realistically have any issues with either synthetic or wall, provided that the synthetic layers have been treated with some kind of odor suppression, whether it's, you know, polygene or some sort of silver bath for the, the raw materials before they make that layer. I found that the synthetic layers that are treated, I can get several days of continuous use out of them and don't have any issues really with smell. If, if you're pushing it like a week, then you'll start to notice a difference. At least I do. But even then, it's not that extreme of a difference. It's enough to be noticeable, but not enough where you're just like ready to out your base layers uh, with the synthetics. And, and really, the main differences are, from a technical standpoint, the wool, I would prefer it in areas and times when I know I'm probably not going to sweat and I know I'm probably not going to get wet. Because the wool is hydrophilic, it absorbs water, and therefore it takes a longer time to dry out. You know, the positives of wool, of course, you know, it's got that nice soft skin feel. It seems to perform pretty well in a wider range of temperatures. And of course, it just seems like you can really wear it for a really long time, especially if you're not really sweating. You can wear it for a really long time and not have to wash it. The synthetics, on the other hand, they're hydrophobic and they dry out, especially that, you know, Core Lightweight, a lightweight synthetic, it dries so fast. Uh, even like, you know, mid-weight fleece layers and things like that compared to like a heavier weight wool dries so much faster. So if there's any kind of a situation where I feel like I'm going to be sweating a lot or I might get wet, then I'll definitely lean more towards the synthetic side of things. And if there's, you know, kind of a, I don't have a clear indication of which one of those things might be true. I feel like you can go either way. So I feel like for 90% of the guys, it's, it's kind of just personal preference between those two layers. One of the things I did like about the Core Lightweight from Sitka was that built-in hood and face mask. I didn't think I was going to like it. I just in general don't like hoods. I in general don't like face masks, but that one is light enough that I feel you can still hear maybe 90% of what you can hear without any kind of hood. The breathability isn't an issue with the face mask. It's thin enough that with like a nose button, I can still shoot with that face mask up and even covering my nose. Uh, In fact, when I shot my buck in Wisconsin, I had that face mask up over my nose and I could just feel the nose button through that thin fabric uh, of the face mask. And for turkey hunting, that was when, I mean, that was so great. I didn't have to bother with face paint. I could just run and gun, you know, through the hills, have everything off my head and have that good hearing And then when I strike up a bird or hear a gobble, or I want to get in position, do some blind calling, I just put the hood up over my hat, pull up that face mask. And that was it. I was ready to, you know, hunt and feel felt totally camouflaged. So I definitely was a fan of that garment. It also has a little chest zipper, which I use for my microphones, you know, my little wireless lavalier mics. I usually have them living in that pocket. So especially if you're a Turkey hunter and you're right-handed that pocket is on the left side. So if you do have any kind of a need to put anything in that chest pocket, it's going to be in the opposite side of where your gun would be shouldered. For me, it's on the same side. So that's a little bit inconvenient, but not the end of the world. In fact, I like that base layer enough that I'm really strongly considering, and you can see it on that wish list side of things, that apex hoodie, which is just a little bit heavier garment. It's a mix of, uh, wool and synthetics got a little bit of wool on the inside, but then it's got a nylon, more durable outer shell. And it's got the, uh, integrated elbow pads, which I'd probably take those out. I do like the knee pads on the apex pants. Um, but I feel like that apex hoodie, I could use that for turkey hunting as well as early deer season. And if I go out to Alaska, like I'm planning on for that alpine hunt, I feel like that'd be a good layer for that as well. In fact, I think in general with the Sitka line, if I was trying to, based on my experience with what they have now, if I was trying to recommend, you know, something for a guy who does a little bit of everything, I would recommend not even bothering with their whitetail specific early season stuff, just getting the stuff that's, you know, more crossover use that's designed on kind of the Western side. They have a lot of garments that are easily quiet enough to bow hunt with and I feel like the camel pattern on their subalpine's is a little bit better than the EV2 for early season when you still have leaves up in the trees. I would just, you know, get that western lineup of stuff for the earlier season, the more active use stuff, and then uh, start to get the exterior whitetail garments to overlay over the top when it gets cold enough and the leaves have are, leaves are fallen from the trees and that sort of thing. The incinerator bibs from Sitka I've come to really enjoy. There's a lot of, a lot of back and forth. It seems like in just terms of knowing what the differences are between that and the fanatic, I know Sika has definitely been pushing the fanatic much more heavily toward the Whitetail Hunters than they have been the Incinerator series in general. And that's Incinerator is like five years old right now. They came out with that, you know, quite a while ago compared to the upgraded Fnatic. But really what it comes down to for me is the Fnatic is super quiet, but it's also bulkier. So that's kind of the trade-off. I feel like from a jacket perspective, the layout on the Fanatic jacket, I like better than the incinerator. And even though I think you can still make a use case and be happy with the incinerator over the Fanatic jacket, I feel like unless you're going to be wearing it in, you know, cold rain, then obviously the incinerator has the leg up. But other than that, I feel like I like the Fanatic layout and it's, you know, it's tended to be worth packing in the extra weight and bulk to have that nice layout. But for the bibs, man, I don't feel like there's that much of a noticeable difference from a noise perspective from what I see between the two. And and granted, I haven't used the fanatic bibs in the tree, but I've used the incinerator bibs both on the ground and the tree. It's nice to be able to have that full waterproof where I can sit on a wet log or wet ground and not have to worry about that stuff really soaking through. And it's totally, you know, wind and weather resistant up in the tree. The only concern would potentially be noise. And I don't feel like it's that big of an issue. I feel like the difference from where, an incinerator might get you busted, but the fanatic would not It's gotta be like, you know, 10 degrees below zero and zero wind. Like it's just not that big of a concern in my opinion. And yet the fanatic packs down not nearly as nice on the bib side of things or even the jacket as the incinerators. So I feel like the use case for the incinerator bib versus the fanatic bib, I think for me, the incinerator, you know, still kind of takes the cake but I don't think a guy's going to be disappointed if he gets either. I did use new hats this year. In the past, I've used wool blend hats. I had one from Numa, the brimmed beanie, and then I had one from Cole that I had bought off of Amazon that was kind of a wool blend beanie. Both of them had short brims, and of course I was hunting more with traditional bows last year, so it made more sense. I needed that short brim. This year I used a combination of three different hats primarily. One was, they're all sick of. One was the Stratus beanie. One was the Fanatic beanie, uh, both of which are new for 2020. They had older versions, but now they have newer upgraded versions for this year with better hearing ports. And then also the incinerator GTX hat. I think my favorite all around is probably the incinerator GTX. It's nice, warm, waterproof. We hunted in a day where it was supposed to be snow, ended up being freezing rain. And by the time we got back to the truck, there was like an eighth of inch, eighth inch of ice on like everything including that hat and man having that nice waterproof hat with the bill and everything. I didn't, no water, you know, flowed down into the inside of my jacket. Everything kind of stayed nice and dry. I had icicles forming off the bill of the hat and it still, you know, performed pretty well. It's fairly warm. It's a little bit more packable than the fanatic beanie, but when it gets cold and dry, like, you know, well below freezing where moisture is not an issue, I think the fanatic beanie um, uh, is definitely, I would say that's going to be the warmer choice and that's going to be the choice that I would take. Like when I go to North Dakota next week, I'm not going to be wearing the incinerator hat. I'll be wearing the fanatic beanie, uh, as well as like a, you know, wind stopper, nice fleece lined neck gaiter that I can pull up over my face. And then the stratus beanie is kind of a nice all around. It's got the wind stopper in it. What I like to do with that one is I'll oftentimes have it in like a thigh pocket so I can walk in and, just kind of overall have a little bit better moisture management and better thermal management by, you know, um, John Barklow will call it cap in the chimney where you can have, you can make a big difference in how warm you'll get, whether or not you have a hat on versus not. And so if I'm just covering ground, I'll usually have the beanie off. And then if we stop and, you know, scout or slow down for a little bit and I start to get a little chilled, then I'll put that beanie on, or I think I'm going to be you know, slowing down and getting ready to set up, I'll put that beanie on right away. And that has worked, you know, pretty well also. And sometimes if it's just warmer in general, I might just wear a ball cap. But then if I feel like I need it, it starts to get a little bit more chilly than I anticipated. That beanie doesn't take up all that space, I'll just pull it out and put it on, on over the top of the hat. The Numa base layers, I'm a big fan of as kind of like a next to skin. And what I can even do since the top layer is a vest is I could wear and what, what I would normally do when it got mid season, I would wear the Numa heated vest next to skin. Cause I feel like you still get good enough moisture management through that lightweight synthetic. And I would wear the Sitka core lightweight over the top of that as kind of that next base layer. And then over the top of that, if I felt like I needed it, I would wear either a Merino wool, uh, from like Fleet or their alpaca merino wool or like a first light wool. And what I liked about that system, or at least the theory behind that, was that you had those synthetic, better moisture wicking layers next to skin covered by the wool on the outside. So that moisture moves very quickly through those next to skin layers and into the wool. And then that keeps your skin dry. And I, it definitely worked. I mean, if I was really pushing it or if I was speed scouting or something, and I knew I was going to sweat. I never really felt wet, but I could take those layers off when I, you know, got back to the truck and the outer wool layer would be wet. You know, you could feel the moisture there, but the next to skin stuff was a little bit drier. So it definitely, it definitely functioned like anticipated in that regard. Uh, but I also feel like when it gets very cold, then I'd almost be better off with just having the synthetic next to skin uh, ditching the wool altogether and just wearing a wind blocking layer, a light wind blocking layer that hopefully I can vent to uh, just to make sure I can, you know, get a little bit higher level of activity, move a little bit quicker without overheating, but yet still keep that cold biting wind off of my myself. And then once I get to the tree and I'm ready to slow down and set up, then I can put on the bigger, you know, bulkier garments over the top. I also don't think that in general I'd have an issue with moving to all synthetic uh, for the type of stuff that I do. I mean, I have enough wool that I continue to use it, but usually you can save a little bit of money with, you know, a treated synthetic versus a wool. So, you know, it's kind of personal preference. I I will say when I was scouting the other day, I did punch through the ice and get wet. And the pants that I was wearing, I was wearing the fleet pants, which are just a soft shell that has a fleece backer. And I was not wearing any kind of Merino wool uh, or even any synthetic base layers. I was just wearing those pants, knowing that I would be, you know, scouting, moving fast, high activity was like 30 degrees. And I was just wearing a synthetic liner sock under my boot. And when I punched through, I mean, my whole leg up to mid calf got soaked, Uh, but I just kept moving and, you know, kept walking, kept scouting, kept going at that good pace. And it eventually dried out. And if I was wearing a wool base layer, I know that that would have soaked up a lot more of that water and it would have retained its wetness longer. Uh, same thing with the sock it would have taken longer to dry out whereas just that thin liner sock felt like it was able to dry a little bit more quickly to the point that after maybe 20 minutes of walking i could not perceive a difference between the leg that really got soaked and the leg that was just kind of damp from foot sweat they felt the same so i think i think there's definitely a strong use case for all synthetic base layers but wool is also a good choice i feel like just depends on you know kind of your preference I am just in general a a pretty big fan of the the Thleet stuff. Uh, I like, you know, I'll I'll talk to William on the phone every now and then and the guy really knows his stuff and we can kind of nerd out about textiles and clo values and just kind of, you know, functionality in the whitetail woods. And I I can say this because there's been some blog posts on the website, but they are coming out with new stuff and it should be here, you know, hopefully, pretty early in 2021. So I'm pretty excited for the the things that they have in the works. The only other things I have on there would be the, the puffy pants, which I talked a little bit about in the Iowa episode where they're nice. They add a little extra layer of warmth. I don't have to, you know, drop my pants to put them on, you know, under the, underneath I can use them as it was intended on kind of the Western side and just put them on over the top. I can slip them on kind of underneath my SIS haulers, but still on the outside of my saddle. So I'm not compressing that insulation. The only downside to it is you've got the connection points at the hips or Velcro, which is, you know, obviously not ideal when you're trying to do it at your setup location, unless it's like a rut type of a, an area or like a pinch point where it really doesn't matter how much noise you make in some cases, but it definitely has a use case. And I know that for some of the guys that do still hunting and, you know, we'll just kind of sit every now and then, that's a a pretty nice option too, to just kind of be able to throw those on over the outside because they don't weigh as much as bibs. Uh, They don't weigh nearly as much as even like the incinerators, which are, you know, still a fairly lightweight system. They only weigh like a pound and you got like a hundred grams of insulation. So it's, it's a nice option for just kind of a quick add remove if you need it. And where it's, you got a little bit of a chill, but maybe not quite enough of a chill to require that next level of clothing. So you can end up carrying a little bit less weight in. I probably will get another puffy jacket top uh, for more of the out West stuff. I have the, I have the fleet puffies, which I'm pretty happy with the tailwind. Um, but if I say, for example, go out to, you know, Southeast Alaska in August, then I feel like the color palette is not ideal for that. It's more ideal for like a, you know, in the tree whitetail type of a a hunt. I like how the, the pattern breaks up a little bit. Um, so maybe I'll end up bringing that, but I also just kind of want to see if there might be something that I would also prefer even more. Um, you know, one of the ones I was looking at was just the, the Ancapagra 2.0, uh, or for example, the, the Sika Calvin light, uh, or even the, um, Kuyu, I believe it's the Kenai is their synthetic, uh, top. That's a little bit, uh, they're all kind of lighter weight puffies and they're all synthetic, which is going to be, I think a little bit better and just overall wetter climate. For boots, definitely the workhorses for me this year have been the Keen Durand 2. They're a mid-top hiking boot. I've used them for most of the hunts this year, uh, with the exception of some of the early season cattail marsh type hunts, where I just needed a little bit more water protection. And for the North Dakota hunt, I might not use them just because it might be a little bit too chilly for that. But I mean, like for the Iowa hunt, I use that. I use those in Missouri. I used them, you know, all my Wisconsin hunts for the most part. And really, you know, if it got cold enough, I, that's when I would pack in the Arctic shield boot insulators. And if I needed to, you know, pack in an extra, a couple hand warmers, that I could throw in before zipping those boot warmers up and cold feet was never really too much of an issue. Of course, I still use the, you know, antiperspirant foot lotion, just the, the nice little liner sock, and then just a really thin Merino sock over the top of that. And then those boots, and that tends to keep my feet fairly dry, throw on the Arctic shield boot insulators over the top with maybe some extra heat and I didn't really have any issues that said, I think as cold as it might be in North Dakota, uh, next weekend or next week, uh, that might, that might, you know, kind of force me into a little bit heavier boot, which is one that I actually just picked up, which is from a fishing boot company. I, I think it's even like a, might even be like a Russian company. It's a Akara Nordman extreme boot. It's EVA. So it's the, the boot material is the same material as like those tingly ultralight boots. So the boot is much lighter than you would expect just by looking at it. Uh, but unlike those tingly ultralights, they're made to be a little bit warmer. So they're oversized, but they have a removable insert that has, you know, several layers of, of, uh, material in it to help pull away some of that moisture, uh, reflect some heat back. I think there's a, you know, a little metallic layer in it and th- there's just, a lot more insulation in general, but they're still pretty light. I think they're probably half the weight, if that, of a similar looking insulated uh, rubber boot. They are bigger overall too, from just like the platform perspective. So, you know, that might be another case where I might look at bringing the XL Predator instead of the regular, just so I have a little bit extra foot space, even though I think they'll still be fine. I have size 12 in those boots. I normally will wear size 11 shoes, And the size 12 boots, I mean, they're comparison to like a sneaker. I mean, you're looking at like a 14 or 15 sneaker just because they're bigger in general. So they're not the coldest of cold, you know, weather pack boots. I think they, they're rated for like, you know, negative 75 or however the boot rating systems go, which is not nearly the, uh, the, you know, accurate, legitimate comfort rating that you can wear those boots down to in a static environment. It's probably more of a, a walking type test, um, some of the other pack boots that I have, like the predator extreme pack boots, I think they're rated to like, you know, minus 150 or something like that. But they also weigh like two or three times as much, even though they're kind of similar size. The only downside that I really have with that rubber boot height, you know, you got the 17 or 18 inch height on those boots combined with a little bit bigger size is that when I put my bibs on over the top, I can't zip the bibs down over the top of the boot. It's like just too big in diameter. So what I ended up having to do is uh, tucking in the bottom of those bibs inside the boots. And the nice thing about the boots is that they have a little snow shield that has a a cinch cord on the top. So once I do that, I can go ahead and snug that down over the top of my bibs. And so it's not like there's any kind of open air movement. Everything's still sealed in. And with uh, with those bibs from Sika, they have less insulation in the calf region. So in that case, it actually works out pretty well that's uh, kind of what they were designed for was those taller boots. So they're not as, you get a little bit potentially of a cold spot when you're wearing just those mid-top hikers. But with the taller boots, they they work pretty well. They mesh pretty well. Um, whereas with the Predator Extreme Pack boots, they're a little bit tighter. You know, they're lace-up boots. They're tighter to my ankle. And those, I have no problem putting my bibs down over the top and, and zipping them fully down. So just a couple of things to keep in mind. Uh, if there is a little bit of shallow water, then obviously just like with rubber boots, those would do just fine and keeping the water out and being totally waterproof. I also wore them in 30 degrees for a four hour, (coughs) excuse me, not four hour, four mile scouting loop, uh, with just some liner socks. And never was I like, Oh my gosh, these, these are way too heavy. They're way too, uh, warm. They, They seem to work pretty well in terms of drawing that moisture away from my foot. And, you know, I still dried out the, um, the liners when I got back home, but there, there wasn't really that much of an issue. Definitely not the best choice for hilly or hilly terrain because they are a bit looser feel. It's almost like your foot has more room to slide around and, and kind of, you know, push one way or the other because the liner is soft. So if you were on really steep terrain, side hilling or something like that, your, your foot would tend to move around in that boot a little bit more than you would want. Uh, versus like a a smaller lighter boot, or even a lace-up boot, would would still definitely be ideal in that kind of a scenario. But for flat ground, they're going to be they're going to be great. I'll probably use them for ice fishing also. One thing I did attempt this year for the early season cattail stuff was a different style of hip boot, one that was hopefully going to be a little bit better in muckier, squishier type terrain. Where I had a Chota hippie, which is it's kind of like a pull-up hip boot, but instead of an integrated boot, it just has a neoprene waiting sock at the bottom. And so it's intended to be used with waiting shoes. And at the top, it has a nice cinch cord that you can snug it, you know, pretty well around your thigh. It comes in a camo option. You can even tighten it around your calf. And so those were a couple of things that I liked about it. They had waiting shoes that they recommended for it also, but they did not have my size. So I ended up going to Amazon and just buying some of those generic work shoes where they're lighter weight, but they still have a puncture resistant sole and kind of a steel toe. And I ended up sizing them up to like the very biggest size that Amazon offered, which is like a 13 and a half US size equivalent, I think. And those were still maybe a hair on the tighter side, but they, they were workable. You know, the neoprene sock takes up quite a bit of, of room. Whereas I've heard with the actual boots that come, the weighting shoes that come from Choda that you would pretty much size them spot on to what you would normally wear. And they worked pretty well. The only downsides to them was that material. It made me a little bit nervous when I would get up on the the higher ground and you'd have, you know, the, the briars or the thorns or whatever, they're just kind of, you know, slowly pick away at them. I'd never had any holes develop. And there were times when I scouted through stuff that I definitely know those, uh, those little hip waders or the chodas were not intended for. So I was pretty pleased with how they held up. They do also make a tundra version. That's a little bit heavier duty made for, you know, people that are hunting Alaska and so on and so forth, but they didn't have those in camo. Uh, so I chose to go with a little bit lighter weight version and yeah, it, it, I was, I was pretty happy with them, but I would definitely want to, I think, move to more of a, a traditional weighting shoe that ones that I got from Amazon, even though they were, you know, intended to be nice and lightweight, they soaked up a lot of water uh, and they took a long time to dry. So that would be something I would want to for sure change to. I did definitely enjoy how they, you know, because of the lace-up aspect of shoes, were able to fit nice and snugly on my foot. So if I did punch through pretty deep into muck, I was able to much more easily pull my foot out than if I just had like the Tingly Ultralights, where there's really not much ankle grip, and it would take a little bit more effort to actually pull the boot out with each step out of the muck. Like with most hip boots, the fabric on the Chodas, it was definitely noisier than I would prefer. Once you get up into the tree, you know, it never wasn't much of an issue because you're not really swishing your legs together. Uh, but from just a general walking sense, once you have those things snugged against your thigh with the little drawstrings, you don't get too much of a swishing. But from the exterior vegetation that is also brushing against your legs, that would make noise. I've wanted to, in the past, make like a separate layer of quiet material to go over the top of like the tingly ultralights because they were, they were more durable, you know, they're brush busting nylon outers. Uh, but the tread pattern on those tinglys is, is to the point where I would almost need new ones anyways. And so I chose not to do that DIY mod instead, try out the, the Chota hippies this year. In the past for packs, I've used primarily the mystery ranch pop-up 28. It's not the newest version they have out. I had the original version of that pop-up pack which is slightly different. They've made some tweaks in terms of how the load shelf or the load lifters uh, rise up out of the pack. But I've continued to use that a little bit this year, but not nearly as much as I have in years past. Uh, I also did get two newer packs. One is the Sika Tool Bucket, which was redesigned for this year. The other one was one I actually bought last fall, which was the Sika Fanatic Pack, which has no structure in, in it. It's basically just like a Berber Fleece, you know, a Berber Fleece, Open pocket pack that doesn't have a hip belt and it's just got some additional pockets and has all silent closure, you know, no noisy snaps or plastic buckles or things like that. Sam ended up using that pack quite a bit this year, whereas I use the tool bucket for probably 85% of my sits. And the reason I like that is because when you get up in the tree, having a big frame pack or even a smaller frame pack, it just takes up more room. And the hip belt kind of wraps around the tree. It takes up extra space. Definitely from an in the tree perspective, having a more minimalist pack is more ideal for saddle hunting. And that fanatic pack works really well up in the tree. A lot of times it's quiet enough. I would use it as kind of like even um, a bit of a a knee pad. I would hang the pack. So it was right in front of me. And I like that aspect of it. The tool bucket, I felt like made a nice balance between having enough structure to do more things and be a little bit more versatile. It's got some extra exterior straps where I could, um, go ahead and attach extra clothes to the outside on the top and the bottom. In addition to kind of the outer face of the pack, whereas with the fanatic, I could really just use that outer face of the pack, but I didn't have the extra straps on top and bottom and the the tool bucket. If you open it up, you can kind of pull down the, um, uh, well, you can expand it. It's, it's kind of like the similar concept as like the mystery ranch treehouse. house. Um, It's going to be really tough to explain. So if you just look at a picture or video of it, that'd be a little bit more clear in terms of what I'm trying to describe. But I felt like with that pack, I could do anything I wanted to do with it. And it was quieter than the mystery ranch pop-up pack. And it's definitely going to be kind of my primary overall pack moving forward with the exception of when I'm just either number one, expecting to pack out a deer or number two, if I'm just carrying in too much stuff. Right? Like when I went to Iowa, I used the pop-up 28 pack again because you know I had the Predator XL. I brought all my climbing sticks everywhere I went. I was going to be going up and down um, bluffs. I had extra clothes I was packing in, um, my camera gear, camera arm. So there's just more stuff in general. And sort of my expectation was that if I did choose something, I would have to you know at least pack out a portion of the way. So that certainly made the use case much more in favor of the pop-up style of pack or just a frame pack in general, the hip belt's worth it. The extra size is worth it. uh, So on and so forth. But for kind of the 80%, you know, percent of the other stuff that I'm doing, the lack of the hip belt was nice. And there were some times when maybe I'm talking like long hunts where, or long access routes where I might've had, you know, five mile total day and I'm carrying in, you know, the fanatic jacket and filming stuff and bibs and the platform and the, the climbing sticks where it just, it became a little bit lot. By the time you get back to the truck, you know, your shoulders would be a little bit sore. And after a second day of doing it, your shoulders would be really sore. And I started thinking, you know, maybe the pop ups is better uh, for that. Um, but that's, I, I would say that's probably, I would guess more the exception than the rule for the vast majority of guys. I think the fanatic pack is also a good option. Uh, there's a, you know, kind of a following of guys, you know, that really like and enjoy just those minimalist fleece packs that are just deadly silent. I know there's a few of them that have been made over the years and if you're one of those guys you'll probably like the Fanatic pack. I used two different sets of binoculars this year uh, both from Maven the 7x28s and also the 7x45s. The 7x28s are your lighter weight, more compact, cheaper binoculars. i got them for 160 on Amazon when they're on sale but the normal price I think is around 200 seven the x 45s they're constructed a little bit differently they have a much bigger exit pupil they're going to take up more space on your your chest they're going to obviously be significantly heavier and i would usually just carry those on my rick young bino harness whereas if i was using the seven x 28s usually i just have them in a pocket and there's definitely a difference in optical quality Especially in low light conditions, the 7x45s are, I think, overall a little bit more pleasant of a viewing experience. And in low light, I can definitely make out details a little bit better with the 7x45s than I can with the 7x28s. And the darker it gets, the more pronounced the difference becomes. So I think there's definitely a case to be made for the more expensive binos in terms of if optical quality and what you're able to see is the biggest concern to you. But I think also for a lot of guys, there's definitely not going to be the need to go to that level you know, the seven by 28s work well for a pretty wide range of, um, pretty wide range of scenarios, exit pupils, four millimeters, which is, is not, you know, as nearly as big as the seven by 45s, but it's also not bad. And even for like something, you carry Turkey hunting and you're trying to figure out, is that a Tom over on the other side of the field? Or is that, you know, a hen that's walking across the field or is, is that just, you know, like a, a tire that's sitting out in the middle of a field or whatever the case may be around a fence row. The 28s, the cheaper ones are definitely going to be totally fine for that. They're going to be fine for probably 90% of your deer hunting type activities. It's really just those extreme case viewing scenarios where the difference becomes pretty clear. So that's kind of what I would say. I would say most likely you're fine with the, the cheaper, lighter binos, unless you're definitely a glass heavy guy and you don't mind the extra cost to get, you know, a little bit better quality of optic. One thing I'm definitely looking into is something I can record through. Digiscoping is definitely a way that you can film through optics. It's pretty popular out West or for guys that are, you know, glassing bean fields or whatever in late summer where you take your cell phone and you rig it up with some kind of an adapter so that you can film right through the glass. And that works pretty well for that specific use case where you are able to set up your optics and you know, a tripod or, or something like that. Uh, but it's not very practical for use up in a tree. And it's not very practical for use when you're like accessing your hunting land, or if you're still hunting or something like that, I've 3d printed little adapters that I can stick on my phone that make it really easy to just kind of line up, not necessarily attach, but just kind of line up in the eye cup of my binoculars and just get some quick footage through that. But it's always kind of a hassle and a pain in the butt. And so I've been looking at different binoculars that would allow me to film through them. They're not going to be optical binoculars in the the same way. We're just looking straight through glass. They're going to be more similar to that psionics Aurora that I have where it's, it's really more of a camera and you're looking at a, you know, an LCD viewfinder within the inside of the the system. So one of the ones I was looking at was like the ATN binoculars that they have. The only challenge with that is that they have an integrated infrared illuminator and that could create some issues uh, potentially with legalities based on, you know, night vision or or shining laws. So it's one of those things I'd only be able to use in a case-by-case basis in the woods. But from a filming perspective, if I'm able to prove, you know, that the IR is disabled, um, and I've I've talked to a few game wardens already, and it's just really going to come out on a case-by-case basis, depending on where I'm hunting. Uh, But just that aspect of being able to film through the binoculars and see what I'm able to see. There's been a lot of times where I wish, I I see something through the binos, and I wish I could capture it. Uh, it's just as anybody who looks through binoculars and also looks through like a camcorder LCD can tell, it's just a totally different viewing experience. And there's been a lot of times where I see something through the binos, try and get it on camera and just never really capture it. Or, um, uh, I'm trying to look at high zoom with something on the camcorder. And I think I see something and I look at the footage on my computer and it's something a little bit different. So I'm definitely looking uh, down that road. So it, we'll see. I'll probably, if I give them, um, do a, a video on them and just see. The things I like, things I don't like, maybe some comparisons to optical glass. Probably not one of those things that the majority of guys would use, but from the filming aspect, then there's definitely a potential advantage there for me. There's a couple other, just kind of general accessories that I use uh, for pruning shears where I'm able to use them. I've been pretty happy with the Falco models. Um, the F6 is the one that I have. I got them off of Amazon. They're like 50 buck, 50 dollar pruning shears, so they're not cheap, but they're hardened steel. They're your higher quality pruning shears that, you know, if your branches or whatever you're trying to cut are, you know, half inch, you know, finger sized, even thumb size, you can still cut through them pretty easily with one hand. And like in Wisconsin, for example, the, the law is you know, should be less than an inch in diameter, um, on the same tree that you're climbing. And so for stuff that small, I don't really need like a ratcheting pruning shears or a saw that's been, you know, pretty more than capable of doing what I needed to do when I needed to do it. I use the hooks messenger grunt call, which for whatever reason this year at some point got some kind of an issue with it. It's not making the same tone that it used to. I'd love to be able to get to a point where I can just vocally grunt and have it work pretty well and be happy with it. But I'm just not quite there yet. So I might get a replacement for that, or I might just keep practicing a a vocal type of a grunt. I also used a different skinny knife that I've used in the past in the past. I've used either the Havlon Piranha or the kind of that original Gerber Vital. And I haven't really had many issues with those types of knives in the past, other than the piranhas really kind of challenging to replace the blades with, unless you get that little plastic adapter that takes up the same amount of space and weight as the whole knife does itself. I tried out a bigger knife this year. It's the Gerber Vital Big Game. And size-wise, it's much more substantial in the hand than one of those other more minimalist knives is. Weighs, I don't know, several ounces more. The blade is longer. The blade is thicker and more durable. And just overall, the usability experience is a little bit better on that knife, I believe, in my, in my opinion. But either one, I think, works well. Like if you were just field dressing and skinning deer, I think, you know, it's hard to go wrong either way. It's just a matter of are you willing to, you know, sacrifice a little bit of usability in the field and a little bit of just that nice feel to save a couple ounces and a little bit of space in your pack, or do you want to you know, spend a little bit more money on the knife, but have a little bit more blade durability, blade length, a little bit better handle for the knife itself. I could see myself going either way uh, moving forward, uh, but I definitely did like the experience of using that knife. And then the last thing to touch on would just be, you know, other accessories on the trail camera side of things. And this year I've used the renders, the Tacticam reveals the spy point cell length and, and cell dark. I'm pretty much done with spy point. Um I just in general have not been very happy with the performance I've gotten out of them and more so the reliability. I have two cell links out there right now that I just, I got to pick them up at some point. They've transmitted like, you know, 10 pictures all year. And, and I know that they're in much better areas than that. Um, and I've had some that just won't work when you try and set them up the Tacticam reveals and the Exodus renders. I've I've talked about this in a previous podcast. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but I've been really happy with both. The Exodus definitely gives you more options. It's a little bit better all-around camera, certainly, than the Tacticam reveal. There's some quirks and some things I wish they would change with the reveals, but overall, the reliability has been pretty good with them. Uh, So kind of similar argument to those little $28 Tascos from Walmart. It's like, yeah, they're not the best, you know, trail cameras, but For the price, the reliability is good enough that you can, you know, oftentimes justify it um, versus just like a cheap thing that's going to be junk. I feel like the reveal is similar where in the cell camera world, it's the reliability is good enough that you can justify buying a cheaper thing and usually getting what you want um, versus paying for something that's more expensive. But it's, it's still, you know, you can't transmit videos. They only send the second picture out of a burst to change your settings, it takes like 24 hours. So you can't just like, you know, turn the camera on to like 10 minute delays. If you get a really windy day, you just going to live with, you know, filling up the SD cards on blanks for that day. So yeah, there's, de- there's definitely some quirks. Um I'd say the renders are, are top of my list reveals to be number two. So I think I've covered, you know, primarily everything that I have used. There might be some things here or there that i missed. If you guys have any additional questions um, or things that you've tried that you really like, you know, maybe you've seen some of the things that are on the wish list uh, that I've been thinking about and have some feedback on those type of items, Um, would definitely be looking to hear some of that as well. So appreciate you guys taking the time to to listen to this review. I hope everybody has a uh, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and a great transition into the start of 2021. That'll do it for this episode. As always, make sure to follow The Sportsman's Nation on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Leave us a review on iTunes. And if you're looking for additional content, subscribe to DIY Sportsman. And with that, thanks for listening.